Hey, this is the Green Blues Show. The latest news, a bit of blues. Today, a landmark scientific report warns of degraded land and biodiversity loss. Cars everywhere to be seen, commemorating Rwanda's 100-day genocide, and mapping climate change, where we are, where we're heading, what Canadians are doing about it. Welcome to the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Out of sight, out of mind. Nothing better exemplifies this old saying in as vile a way than the masses of congealed fat, grease, feces, hygienic paper, and non-decomposable plastic that clog the sewers of major cities around the world. Fatbergs, they're called. Microbiologists at Aberystwyth University in Wales have recently identified a pack of human pathogens in a Fatberg sample courageously extracted from sewers beneath the streets of London. They found a few unusual parasitic worms and a host of intestinal bacteria Not surprisingly, several of these bugs were resistant to antibiotics, the inevitable consequence of being exposed to drugs peed and defecated by the millions of people living just above and the forces of natural selection. Chinese researchers recently identified almost 400 different types of resistance genes in sewage flowing beneath 17 of China's cities, conferring resistance to almost all human antibiotics. What to do about this awful, potentially hazardous mess lurking just meters beneath our homes and streets? Tackling the overuse and misuse of antibiotics at breed resistance is a hugely vexing challenge. By comparison, reducing the flow of wastes that should never be flushed down a toilet or poured down a drain should be straightforward. In London, Ontario, householders are now tipping their bacon grease and old cooking oil into compostable paper cups rather than down the sink. Friendly bacteria digest the fat and generate methane, a great source of renewable energy. Other cities are diverting waste in similar ways. It all comes down to being conscious, paying attention putting the inevitable detritus of our daily lives where it belongs, rather than out of mind and out of sight. This is the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Find you out 
listen to what gonna find you out. You know you can't do wrong and get by in a new shrine to dodge that doubt. If I was you, I play fair in anything I do. If I was you, I would play fair in anything I do. Anytime the people find out that you crooked man did not go. Do nothing in the world for you. My daddy taught me every since I was a child. My daddy taught me. Ever since I was a child Always treat your neighbors right Be fair with your friends likewise Sage words from Sonny Boy Williamson Don't lose your eye Sonny Boy Rice Miller on harmonica joined in this 1955 recording by his King Biscuit time cohort Robert Jr. Lockwood on guitar, Willie Dixon on bass, and Fred Bellow on drums. Human beings are an industrious and highly invasive species. As Earth's human population approaches 7.5 billion, the planet's land surface and oceans are being degraded at an alarming pace. This is the conclusion of a recent report by a group called the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, IPBES for short. Jake Rice is scientist emeritus with the Canadian Department of Fisheries and Oceans. He co-chaired IPBES's America's Assessment. What do we mean by land degradation in 2018, uh, and focusing perhaps specifically on, on the Americas, and what are the drivers of land degradation? Historically, well, land degradation is converting lands from a more natural state to a less natural state. So degradation is relative to where you used to be and making it support less biodiversity. For about the first three centuries, three and a half centuries after European colonization of the New World, most land degradation was simply transforming lands from forests and grasslands to agriculture. And we did that very efficiently. 95% of the grasslands, the tall grass prairies in the Americas, in North America, got converted from natural to human-dominated, either cropland or pasture land. 
most of the eastern forests, the hardwood forests, were converted as well. The drivers now in North America in particular are more urban sprawl and the fragmentation of in infrastructure, roads, pipelines, things like that, that break up nature in ways that the animals and the plants encounter more and more small patches rather than large expanses. And a collection of small patches almost always has less total diversity than an equal amount of land in large patches. But it's amazing that in your report, you indicate that over one-third of Earth's land surface is uh, has been converted to human agriculture and livestock production. One and a half billion hectares, uh, a third of the Earth's surface, and it's rising in, in some form of agriculture or, or industrial food production. That may be a surprising statistic to people who aren't tracking what's happening to the lands around them. But it's a reality, and it's accentuated by an increasingly globalized economy of food production so that most of the land transformation in South America from forests and grasslands or wetlands to agriculture is for export of beef, soybean, and other crops to the developing markets in Asia as those economies strengthen and can afford to import food rather than have a reliance on small-scale farms locally. So what's been lost, uh, Jake Rice, as the result of, of land degradation largely associated with agriculture but also urbanization, urban sprawl, as you put it? What's been lost in, in the realm of biodiversity the way I've found to explain it that rings home to the widest range of people is to say, if back in the 1500s, at the time of the first European colonization of the Americas, someone had gone for a walk through the countryside, whether it was a forest, a grassland, along a stream bank or whatever, and they would have been aware of the diversity of plants, birds, mammals, fish that they saw. Today, if they took that same walk, there would be about a third less diversity of nature. The habitats are so fragmented, chopped up with corridors and infrastructure, that in a given place, there's over 30% less diversity able to survive in a patch of the same habitat as it would have been in the 1500s. And tell me how, where wetlands, wetlands and native grasslands fit into that. Wetlands are among the most impacted and the fastest and have the fastest current rate of loss of any kind of habitat, both globally and within the Americas. It's a combination of increasing demand for the water that the wetlands need to replenish them, 
the fact that wetlands are often places which are easy to convert into agriculture or urbanization by just improving the drainage and changing the water flow coming in. So there's tremendous pressure on them for human development. And in the process of becoming intensified, um, there's an increasing dependence on chemicals, pesticides, and herbicides, um, a very narrow range of crops that are adapted for fast rates of growth and high yields, but not adapted for a diversity of environmental conditions. I think one of the huge problems today, which you, the authors of the various IPES reports allude to, is the fact that human beings, huge swaths of the North American population are are removed from the, the areas of land that are being degraded in order to, to satisfy their consumptive patterns. We no longer see what's going on. There's a spatial disconnect is the term you use. Thank you for making that point because it is one of the major emergent conclusions that we draw from the overall assessment. The increasing disconnect between what people consume and what was necessary to produce the thing consumed increasingly makes the consumer both unaware and uncaring of where it came from. It came from the grocery store or increasingly it came from, oh, I ordered it online. We have lost any understanding of how our well-being depends on the nature that produces it. And we're no longer personally suffering, or so we, it, it appears to us that we're not suffering in any way uh, as the result of the damage that's being caused. We don't f feel the damage. We're actually living off the rest of the world and the future. One of the things that we were able to do in this regional assessment for the Americas is document that globally the Americas have 40% of what's called the global buyer capacity. That's the total capacity of the planet to produce things for humans to use and to get rid of the wastes that humans produce. 40% of it resides in the Americas and we have 13% of the world's population. And we are using nature. We're causing that 13% of the global population is causing 22% of the footprint of humanity on the planet. So we're using nature almost twice as fast as nature can replace what we're taking from it. And part of it is we're borrowing from the future, borrowing from our children. And part of it is we're importing nature from the rest of the world in exchange for paying them money, which we have in abundance compared to much of the world. And the degree to which we have to adjust our patterns of consumption to live in harmony with even the rest of humanity, let alone the rest of humanity and nature, is a very serious challenge to all of us. 
Jake Rice, on that on that point, I'd like to ask you if you can uh, fairly quickly run through a list of the sorts of uh, prescriptions that Ipbez, the authors of Ipbez, have put forward, uh, concrete ideas about how to turn land degradation and biodiversity loss around. Um, and and, and uh, alongside that, it's interesting what you, you say in the report that the payoffs exceed the costs by like tenfold, like the advantages, the payoffs of turning things around and doing th what... <laughs> reforming our activities actually exceed the costs of doing so by tenfold. That's specific to land degradation, but that's an important message. And the other part of that message is we're going to have to pay upfront today for benefits that are going to accumulate in the decades to come. Rehabilitating degraded lands is an excellent strategy. And it will pay off tenfold over time. But we have to pay today and we have to stop doing the things that caused it to being degraded, to be degraded, in order for the rehabilitation to be successful. So we've got to pay today for these benefits in the future. Rehabilitating degraded lands is a good strategy, not degrading lands to begin with. How do we rehabilitate those lands? Um, again, it depends on what caused the degradation. We certainly stop releasing surplus um, nutrients into aquatic systems. Uh, we stop polluting our lands. We stop unnecessarily um, transforming natural lands into sprawling suburbs and more and more transportation corridors and things like that. If we continue to condone urban sprawl, we will continue to lose biodiversity, nature, and the things nature provides to us. If we increasingly disconnect our understanding of what we're consuming from our understanding of where it came from, what in commerce is called the chain of custody of a product. I work in fisheries and eco-certified fish. You can tell from the time it was caught till the time it was put in the shop, it was caught with sustainable gears by fisheries that are not over-harvesting the stock but allowing it to grow. The activities of the fishing vessel were sustainable, they weren't throwing plastic in the ocean. And becoming an informed consumer, insisting that not you get the cheapest thing or you get the most, but you get the thing that is produced globally most responsibly and make that your consuming option. One other area I don't want to forget that we talked about in the assessment is the fact that Pricing, taxation, just like there's now talk of carbon taxes as a way to deal with the cost to the planet of greenhouse gas emissions. Beginning to have pricing based on what it costs the planet to produce the product being consumed rather than what it costs an in, the individual grower or producer. So positive incentives rather than what you refer to as perverse incentives. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's not in our assessment, but for me, an illustration I use sometimes personally talking to people is right now, everybody's being flooded by incentives to consume more, cashbacks on your credit card, points for buying in supermarkets and stuff. These are incentives to produce, to consume more because they tell you'll get something back if you consume more. I would like to see some incentives offered by credit card companies, store chains and stuff, incentives to consume less because that's what we need on this planet. We, few of us need to consume as much as we do to have a good quality of life. Jake Rice, I'd like to thank you for joining me on the Green Blues Show. Thank you. Thank you for the interview. Jake Rice is Senior Advisor to the Assistant Deputy Minister for Science here in Canada and Scientist Emeritus with the Canadian Department of Fisheries and Oceans. He co-chaired IPBES's America's Assessment. Read more about the IPBES report on global land degradation and biodiversity loss at greenplanetmonitor.net. You are listening to The Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg.
Lizzie Douglas, a.k.a. Memphis Minnie, me and my chauffeur blues. Memphis Minnie began her career at the age of 13, busking on Memphis's iconic Beale Street. Between the early 1930s and mid-1950s, she recorded a couple hundred songs for the Columbia, Decca, OK, and Vocalion labels, and shared stages with guys like Sunnyland Slim and Big Bill Brunzi. Me and My Chauffeur Blues, recorded in Chicago in May 1941, was among her biggest hits. Memphis Minnie passed away in 1973. A headstone marking her resting place was paid for by Bonnie Raitt. driving all around were nowhere near as much of a nuisance when Memphis Minnie performed and recorded. Here's something about that. Closer to the window we can see streets lined with parked cars and uh, cars moving everywhere. This is uh, reduced to the occasional cyclist uh, weaving in between the, the cars. But uh, this is clearly an automobile dependent city. There are so many cars in the world clogging up the cities and choking up the highways and smashing into each other and, and blowing up trucks and all of this kind of carnage that you see in these astronomical medical costs that are associated with all of this. Everybody drives a car. That's one of the biggest pollution in the world. Um, just a few days ago, I was traveling from Buffalo on a throughway, and I think about it every time I go on a throughway or on a highway. I see cars ahead of me. How much pollution is that? And no, no wonder we have problems. And uh, are we going to do anything about it? Who's willing to walk now? Nobody. And so, I mean, we've got to give up our cars. We've got to start walking or ride bicycle. But, I mean, are we going to do it? Nobody's going to do it. For me to give up my car for the, for the sake of the earth, boy, that would be a big step for me. Like in, in all honesty, I have to say that driving around in my vehicle, I probably drive a lot. We often hear how expensive it is to provide public transportation in, in a city and you know that we can't afford to, to be improving the, the bus service and so forth. But in fact, when you tally up the numbers, the most expensive way to get around is a private automobile. And if the car actually, if the car drivers actually paid their fair share, I think in one fell swoop, we'd reduce probably by 50% the number of car trips in Edmonton, and suddenly people would be buying mountain bikes and getting out and riding them. Uh, you'd see a flurry of uh, you know bus pass uh, sales, and you'd really see a lot more customers for the alternatives to the automobile. It's been estimated that the hidden costs um, of the of the car, the subsidies, the hidden subsidies to each car driver are on the order of $3,000 per car. Per year. While we do subsidize public transportation to the tune of something like $300 million, I think that's correct, per year, the subsidy to private transportation per year is $2.3 billion. It comes out to something like $2,600 per vehicle per year. 
Now that's consistent with figures from other studies around North America. That's the cost of policing, of road maintenance, of traffic courts, of all of those things that we pay for as taxpayers, whether or not we are automobile drivers. So that's the kind of thing that has not normally been part of an environmental audit. Some people figured that the, uh, the average automobile takes up when you add all the space that's required for automobiles in terms of downtown parking, shopping malls, etc., automobiles actually take up three times more space than houses do. The real challenge for those of us is reducing our dependency on the automobile. It is killing us in many, many ways. Uh, absolutely. It's the, it's the quintessence of, uh, of sustained development and conviviality and, and a dignified uh, life. Uh, a lot of great authors have noted that. For example, H.G. Uh, Wells said, every time I see an adult on a bicycle, I have, I, know, I, I, know I have renewed hope for the future of the human race. And uh, Ivan Illich, in the preface of his book, Energy and Equity, says that uh, socialism can come only by bicycle. So the bicycle, it's uh, absolutely the perfect tool uh, for changes. When you see change from four, years, four, four wheels to two, everything changes. Your lifestyle, the city, your relationship with others, your ambitions, your creativity. Everything, everything improves by that change and you even, maybe even get there quicker. That's the way I think it should be. I'd, I'd like to see more, more of the people walking and less of the cars out there. So that we were hoping the bikes, if somebody has to get somewhere from one end of town to the other or something, instead of hopping in their car and driving, they could take a bike and uh, maybe relieve some of that congestion on the roads. I, I don't think that people naturally, it's not in their genes that people want to drive all day to get to work and to pick up the kids at the daycare and go shopping. It's not people don't want to do that. They do that because, you know, their work is five miles away and then the shopping center is three miles in the, is, is three miles in the other direction and then the kids are at the daycare somewhere else so they're driving around like mad. Um, you know, we could be designing communities so that the daycare center and the workplace and you know and the shopping and the library and all those things are nearby so you could walk and and uh, and ride your bike to, to those things we we have to unhook from this thing of course the ultimate alternative would be to abandon the frivolous use of automobiles to prohibit the use of automobiles in our downtown city cores the frivolous use of automobiles allowing cars to just run at random through the city for sightseeing or, or whatever purpose beside a, a, a reasonable public transit system that's uh, running in a lot of cases empty or, or nearly empty just doesn't make any sense to me. Voices from the Earth Chronicles vault in order of appearance Mark Roseland, John Dunbar, Jake Thomas, Anne Lansley, Tucker Gomberg, Robert Silverman, Rob McMahon, and Don Malcolm. Find out who these folks were and are at greenplanetmonitor.net. Here's a blues tune about automotive insanity. Automotive boogie When I'm riding in my car When I'm behind the wheel of my automobile I feel like I'm a star And I don't give a damn about the hole in the sky And I don't care about the stinging in other people's eyes When I'm driving all around the world Sometimes I take my baby I take a four spin 
things drive me crazy About the shape I'm in Pull out of the parking lot Heading down the road On ramp freeway Let the soccer roll It's happening All around the world The automotive boogie All around the world Better take it easy What's the sign we passed? Man on the TV said we're running out of gas And it's happening all around the world The automotive boogie The automotive boogie The carbon monoxide blowing out the pipes Poison in the atmosphere You know that in the riding it's happening All around the world Automotive Boogie, Sean O'Halloran on guitar with percussive accompaniment by Paul Panchazik. You are listening to the Green Blues Show here on 95.9 FM, CKUW in Winnipeg, Canada, or somewhere around the world, courtesy of the World Wide Web. Spring is well underway. Summer will soon be here. Time for Canadians to enjoy the warmth. In the tiny East African nation of Rwanda, this is the time of year to commemorate mass murder. Between April 6th and early July 1994, some 800,000 ethnic Tutsis and their Hutu friends perished at the hands of Hutu extremists. Here's a story I produced about the 100-day Rwandan genocide and the challenges of speaking truth on a university campus, no less, back in 2011. A cramped rehearsal room beneath the stage of the auditorium at the National University of Rwanda in the mountain town of Butari. guitarist perches on the edge of an amp, noodling on his axe. A drummer picks up the beat. Half a dozen other students clap, sway, and sing an iconic Bob Marley song. This is Salus Populi, Butari's most popular student band. But the boys in this band aren't just here to entertain. They have a message, too. We have to, to give the, the message to Rwandans. Norbert is Salus Pop's guitarist. Our country becomes a very good country where people are happy, where people don't die with the, of war. So, harmony. While the word harmony slips easily off the lips of a student musician like Norbert, 66-year-old Anastas Gahunga has a harder time. I can't take and go to cultivate for someone who killed my family, for those people who ripped apart his family members and relatives. Anastas Gahunga is a genocide survivor. 
When Rwanda's bloody 100-day nightmare began on April 7, 1994, Anastas was working here on campus. For almost two weeks, the leaders of this ethnically mixed university town refused to carry out orders to start killing Tutsis. On April 19th, extremists moved in. Anastas and I walk with my interpreter through a forest of towering eucalyptus, pine and mahogany on the edge of campus. It was in this 200-hectare arboretum where much of the horror would unfold. Yeah, here you, can, you could find people who were running after Tutsi. We come across a deep ravine covered in bushes. Yeah, that's where uh, actually people were hiding, down here. Soldiers could come and either shoot in the air or directly shoot inside there, and that's how they could be caught. Anastas managed to survive because his workmates thought he was a Hutu. His family was less lucky. About 350 people of his family died. So sometimes he, he's, he, he's sorrow-stricken that he burst out crying like a child. Reconciliation is difficult. It's a, a wonderful idea, but it's difficult to, to achieve sometimes. Yeah, we need the reconciliation. Because we can't keep living such a bad life among us as long as we are still on the earth. Because even our president tells us that reconciliation is important, that we have to live as we used to be in the, few, in the past. Uh, about how Tutsi students and the Hutu students are living together, I think. Mugisha Magnifique is a fourth-year university student. He thinks reconciliation on campus is possible. In fact, it's already happening. The top leaders of our country has uh, urged uh, students and the whole population to live together and to reconciliate uh, themselves. So everybody does it, just like that. Yeah. B no uh, problems. There are no problems at all between... Mm. Knowing some of the backstory, I push Mugisha a bit. Finally, he bends a little. There is some problem because there is some families who they, they still remembering what they saw in the genocide. And this is a, a, a great challenge to them to, to adopt the reconciliation policy easily. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hello. Ah. Ah. <laughs> I recognize you. <laughs> you know me? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Come on in. On the second floor of the National University's main building, I sit down with another student named Emmanuel. He says students do get along day to day, sometimes even cozily. 
kandi turasangira nibiri sabune tushora umushora kumutiza umwenda in my room we are four of us two of the four people so so called hutu but i can share soap with them i can share shoes with them i can lend them my trousers and incredibly one of those so called hutu they share the bed Emmanuel is a genocide survivor a tutsi but he doesn't usually tell people that kuba wa muhungabanya akabyita nk'ingenga bibitekerezo genocide niyo mpamvu that person whom you are not familiar with can quickly say look is trying to have a, a genocide ideology and he is trying to come up with those ethnicities like tutsi and hutu but people with whom we share the same room the same class and whom we are familiar with we can say i'm a hutu or i'm a tutsi Magnifique and Emmanuel have reason to accentuate the positive. They're both Tutsis, and a Tutsi governs Rwanda. Hutu students tell a different story. This young man I'll call Teogen. Teogen and I sit on a log on the edge of the arboretum where we can't be overheard. Teogen is worried about speaking openly, particularly right now on the eve of the 17th anniversary of the genocide. He says that's actually where the fear lies. A word, a single word you can use may be, you know, misinterpreted. For example, he says, for for instance, you can come up with an idea and say, look, uh, what if you try to shorten the time the the, the morning uh, period takes, and maybe uh, take one day to remember? They can say, look, the guy is trying to minimize what happened during the genocide, and he can be accused of genocide ideology. If you can't talk on a university campus about what actually happened in the 1994 genocide, for example, how many Tutsis and Hutus perished over those dreadful hundred days, where can you discuss such an issue? Julian is a member of Butari's university community. I've invented the name. I've also changed Julian's voice. Free speech on campus is impossible during genocide commemoration week, Julian tells me, especially when there are student spies about. Whenever you like stumble on something or you go astray to report you, you think like you are of your friends. All of a sudden, it's like it's reported. Then it can even boomerang on you without you knowing it's happened. Nothing could be worse for a student or a lecturer than to be accused of genocide ideology. For example, by suggesting that it wasn't just Tutsis who perished in the 1994 genocide. During the genocide, not only Tutsi were killed, but also Hutu were killed. These people are not even allowed to remember their relative or their parents who actually died during the genocide. When you treat them like that, you develop some kind of tension, which maybe explodes sometime. It's that kind of tension that prompted four anonymous Hutu students to write an open letter to Rwandan President Paul Kagame on an opposition website. Tutsi students are favored, the dissident writers complained, 
while Hutus are spied upon and dispersed. If the current situation continues, the students summed up darkly, we may be driven to demonstrations, perhaps to be shot. 17 years, it is not too much so to, to heal all the wounds for different people. Salus pop musician Jean Lambert and I are chatting on the front patio of Butari's major hotel. He levels with me. Making music together has not always been a bed of roses for his 20 student bandmates. Sometimes with the groups, we, with the, the families we came from, there are some, some challenges to accept our decisions. Jean Lambert's pal, Patassé, is upbeat. He's the band's drummer. Unity is what drives him. We are moving. We are moving. We are a new generation. We are thinking of um, the future of uh, our music, the future of our life. We, we, we can't forget what happened, but we, we are free to forgive. Are you ready for them? Are you ready for them? Please welcome the National Infrastructure Orchestra, Jean Lambert and Patassé were outside Rwanda when the genocide took place and therefore have no horrid memories to forget. And their man is running the country on behalf of all Rwandans. So maybe it's easier for them to look to the future. A recent report said 60% of Rwandans have reconciled, so you could say the cup is more than half full. But here, in this little university town, reconciliation means different things to different people. How can you even measure it? President Paul Kagame can say it's happened. He can banish the words Tutsi and Hutu from the public lexicon. But that will not make ethnic identity and traces of resentment go away. Here on this campus, they will merely become whispers. I'm Dave Kattenberg on the Butari campus of the National University of Rwanda. Read more about the 100-day Rwandan genocide and current debate about what it was all about at greenplanetmonitor.net. She said, you don't see why 
that I will dog around. My baby, you know you ain't doing me right now. She said you don't see what. That I be dug around. It must be that only the spirit so deep down in the ground. You may bear my body, I'm by the hobby side. Baby, I don't care where you bear my body when I'm dead and gone. You may bear my body, ooh, no but a harvester. So my old evil spirit can get a crayon person rough. Me and the Devil Blues, Robert Johnson. Cartography, the art and science of map making, is a marvelous pursuit. Maps tell you where you are and guide you to your destination, the quick way, perhaps down the scenic route. Some are designed to help change direction altogether. Such is the aim of a brand new set of maps developed by climate change scientists and geographers at the University of Winnipeg. The Climate Atlas of Canada, just released, illustrates what Canada will look like in great detail as planet Earth warms. Ian Morrow led a team that created the Climate Atlas of Canada. The Climate Atlas is a very powerful tool because it, for example, shows that, you know, in a place like Toronto, and we can, we can click into it, in a place like Toronto, um, if you zoom in to that area, so we're clicking down, you can kind of see the graph paper lines. If you click into Toronto, uh, in an average summer right now in Toronto, they get about uh, 12 plus 30 days on average. And if you take a look at the high carbon far future, that's going to jump up by about 43 plus 30 days. And a place like Toronto is going to have about 55 plus 30 days in an average summer. Um, if we look at Winnipeg, uh, Winnipeg has uh, similarly startling um, numbers in terms of the number of hot days. Um, these plus 30 days, on average, we have about 11 plus 30 days in Winnipeg at the later part of the century, 2051 to 2080, in a high carbon scenario, that's going to jump up by about 36 plus 30 days. And we're going to have, you know, almost 50 plus 30 days, um, again, in that high carbon far future. And we start to think about that. And we're like, that's on average, you know, that's jumping up to like almost two months of plus 30. And when you think about, you know, uh, seniors, and you think about people without air conditioning, and you think about vulnerable populations with respiratory issues, you know, this is actually a threat to people's lives. We, we like to show this example because one, it's startling. Like, and you look at the map, like you can zoom out. And so we're zooming the map out right now. And you look at the country and it's blue in most of the places, but you look at the center of the country where we are on the prairies, it is incredibly hot in that high carbon far future. Southern Ontario, parts of the valleys, interior valleys of BC, like you can just see where the risk is in a very real way. And so this is, you know, in a academic sense, in a planning sense, it's a risk assessment tool. In a public sense, in a policy sense, it's, you know, broad education and people can start to kind of think through this. But these these play buttons on the map, 
are also these kind of stories of hope and resilience. So back to Toronto, if we click on Toronto, there's a, um, a city councillor there, Gord Perks, and he talks about how he, he's been going into communities telling people, like, this is what the global climate models say. This is, you know, a future that is going to potentially impact us negatively. And he started kind of pounding the pavement. And from the ground up, from the grassroots, he started to speak with different faith leaders in Toronto. And it turns out that the mosques, the temples, the synagogues, the churches, uh, you know, are ideal spaces to gather. And in this kind of, you know, hot future that, that, that these faith leaders who I guess were meeting regularly as, as a kind of, you know, uh, interfaith kind of group said, hey, maybe we're part of that solution. And they've started to build backup generators and, you know, the necessary supplies for heat waves. And so these faith groups across denominations in a in a big city like Toronto are actually this kind of informal network of cooling stations. And and Gord Perks just says there's a silver lining here, you know, around this kind of this 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 social cohesion that we build and how a lot of these people are saying, who are the vulnerable people in our congregations and what kind of you know networks do we have to make sure that if there is an emergency in terms of a heat wave, who is going to go and check on these people? And it just is a really fabulous story about how there are these kinds of already forming social networks of of resilience that are forming. And it's not even a government program. It's people realizing, you know what, we got to do something. And so, again, the Atlas tries to find these stories and, and elevate them and bring them out and, and share them through the power of this kind of technology to, to, to not kind of paint a damned future, but to, you know, show us that there's a serious challenge on our hands, but we also have the capacity of humans as humans and communities to do something about it. Can users interact with a climate uh, map and actually contribute to it? Is there some way for people to insert their own stories as they go along? Yeah, so as we move forward you know we we had an idea we've implemented this idea as a group at the prairie climate center we're pretty excited about it again people seem pretty interested but we're looking at how to kind of create a participatory map where people can participate and be part of this we have an indigenous knowledge section that's forthcoming and so i've been doing a lot of work with and for indigenous communities for a very long time that whole section is forthcoming and is being developed collaboratively with communities to make sure it hits the mark and speaks to their priorities and, and is in fact guided by them. And so that's that's an example of that kind of participation in terms of kind of curated content. But in terms of the actual like being able to, to go to this site and add something to the map, we actually have a um, pilot project that we're developing in Alberta where, um, in fact, the government of Alberta, interestingly enough, wants to potentially uh, work with Indigenous communities um, using participatory video to, as a form of climate change monitoring. And so we're working on developing a series of workshops and a series of trainings where we deploy video cameras into some of these First Nation communities and they will be able to develop their own stories and at the very bottom of the atlas there's a series of variables and we've been talking about putting a monitoring tab on there so that you could click on this monitoring tab and the stories generated by communities could start to populate the atlas and that's a an, an initial way of thinking about it it's a it's a pilot project but we're trying to figure out how to allow communities to kind of add their voice and again we, we we work in video we think it's a powerful medium and we want to kind of potentially make that as an accessible way for people to contribute their stories 
you know, we do have stories in the map that are mitigation focused. So I think that's the other piece of this is that, you know, the Atlas will show you these, you know, what the, the country will will look like in, in different emission scenarios. But there are these stories of communities on the move to mitigate. And so Montana First Nation, just outside of Edmonton, first Indigenous community solar program in Canada, and they're employing their people and they're, you know, using their kind of traditional values of respect for the land with new technology to create a new economy that's good for the environment in their First Nation, and they're actually installing solar all over Alberta. Super cool story. Um, in Tatamagush in Nova Scotia, one of my favorites, a um, bunch of community members combined with uh, a person who's actually from that town who's got a PhD in you know electrical engineering and has got a bunch of patents on a bunch of electric vehicles. They put up a wind turbine on their hill. They wired the wind, a couple wind turbines actually, wired those wind turbines to power much of the small city of Tatamagush and also have electric vehicle charging stations in this small town and I was out there and these guys are charging their vehicles off their own wind power and I'm in a car with them driving around and they're like hey this is the future we're driving on our own wind power and so you know people across the country can look at stories like yeah. these and say hey that looks like fun we should do that here as well yeah and I, again I think the the power of storytelling you know, the stories that we tell in many ways define the kind of futures that we're going to live in. And if we tell a story of doom and gloom and we tell a story of, you know, no way out, that's exactly what we'll get. And if we tell stories of resilience, if we tell stories of possibility, if we tell stories of communities looking for solutions and actually being successful in that way, then that is a future that opens up to us. And, you know, that, that teaching came to me from a woman named Elisipi Ishlutak in Pangnertung. And she said to us in an interview, we, we made a film called Inuit Knowledge and Climate Change in the Arctic, which is, there's also a link to that. I made that with Zacharias Kunuk, the acclaimed Inuk filmmaker. And this elder told us, she just said, like, you have to be very careful around how you talk about these things. And that was her teaching was that, you know, if you, if you cast it in a certain light, that's what happens. And so we're trying to, you know, cast this atlas and the stories that we tell, you know, with a balanced perspective that we need to talk in a silver way about what kind of future we have coming down the line potentially, but also the opportunities that we have to get on a different track. We want to tell stories of what it looks like and how it's possible to rise to this challenge and actually make the world a better place. Ian Morrow, thank you so much for joining me on the Green Blues Show. Thanks so much. Ian Morrow is Associate Professor in the Department of Geography at the University of Winnipeg. For more information about the Climate Atlas of Canada, along with a link, go to greenplanetmonitor.net. And that's it for today's edition of the Green Blues Show. The latest news, a bit of blues. Listen to us on CKUW 95.9 FM, University of Winnipeg Radio here in Winnipeg and at ckuw.net. Subscribe to our podcast at greenplanetmonitor.net or around the world on iTunes. Pass the word along. The Green Blues Show is created by Earth Chronicle Productions in cooperation with CKUW 95.9 FM. We're both based in Winnipeg, Canada. I'm David Kattenberg. See you again next time.